Okay, Nick told you last week that chapters 32 and 33 in Isaiah are closely related to each other, linked together, if you will. And the idea is that in those two chapters, Isaiah starts to give us a lot of detail now, starts to spell out a lot for us, gives us these incredible pictures, if you will, of the godly king righteously ruling with power over his people as their protector and their provider. Okay, this in those days or in that day. All right. Isaiah tells us that now, as we've seen, Isaiah's prophecies are layered. All right. He'll, he'll make a prophecy. And in that you'll see things that are maybe ready to happen shortly or maybe years and years later or maybe even the last days, the end times. And so when you see that, as we saw last week a little bit uh, with Nick telling us what we're going to see here is we're going to see the short term impact, if you will, of uh, what's going to happen with Judah and Assyria. All right. But this prophecy also points, as Nick pointed out last week, to the establishment of the faithful church, which we see are going to be the first fruits of that kingdom yet to come. All right. And it also points to the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth, which we'll see pieces of tonight, ruled eternally by Christ, all right, the Messiah, providing for those whom the Father has given him. Okay, so just by one paragraph review here of where we've been, uh, we know that uh, what's been happening in Judah during this time is the Assyrian threat. It's been going on now for years. Uh, we know that God called the Assyrians to be the agent of his judgment, whether they recognized it or not. All right, uh, Isaiah and other places says God like whistles for them when they come. Okay. Uh, we know God also used that army for that purpose. He also uses other things as his agents of judgment. Uh, and here it's going to be judgment on uh, Israel and Judah is what we've been looking at. And what we see is the northern ten tribes, Israel, has already been taken off captive. They've already been captured and, and exiled by the Assyrians. The Assyrians brought in a whole bunch of other folks, right? not Jews, brought in other folks, populated the land, all right, and took what they wanted, all right, but they brought these people in. All this happened, I don't know, roughly 20 years or so before this. And so Assyria is now seriously on the march to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's their next target. They've already invaded Judah. Jerusalem's the next target. And we've seen that Judah's made some tried to make some alliances with Egypt for protection. They're going to help us out here. Egypt said, oh, of course, of course, no problem. However, they don't do anything. They're all talk, no action, right? And King Hezekiah, in desperation now, he's tried everything he knows, right? In desperation, he goes to uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and he's, you know, he's the king of this invading army, right? And he's going to make an attempt to save Jerusalem, save what's left of Judah, by going to uh, the king of Assyria. And we know what some of that looks like from the reference you have in your seat there, Second uh, Kings uh, chapter 18, verses 13 through 16. It says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. 
And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Just to calibrate you, that's about $45 million in today's money. You know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, verse 15. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. Um, all that, okay, uh, in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, have overlain and gave it to the king of Assyria. So in order to meet this financial request, all right, he's basically taken all the money that he's got, all the money that the temple has, and even stripping the gold off of the, uh, the doors and the doorposts. Okay. That's his last resort in his view. All right. I can, I'm, I'm at my wit's end here. This is my last resort. His view. Okay, pays the ransom, Sennacherib, uh, the Sennacherib required, and says Jerusalem's going to be spared. But Sennacherib is not really very honorable in this, obviously. Uh, so if you look at Second Kings nineteen ten through eleven, it says, uh, "Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah." This is Sennacherib's message to his messengers to. Uh, Hezekiah. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devouring them in destruction. And shall you be delivered? So here what we see is Sennacherib not only takes the money, but he's still coming after Jerusalem. And in the process of sending his message, he basically says, you can't trust your God. He mocks the Lord. So Judah, over the course of events leading up through all of this, for the last several years, relied on their military might, their alliances with others, including Egypt, looking for protection. They even resorted to emptying the treasury, like we just saw, stripping the gold off the doors, right? And all this is their hope to get out of this trouble. And it's all worthless. It doesn't prove to do anything. And so what we're going to see is God's going to remind them that he's the sovereign God of all history. He's the one who judges. He's the one who protects. He's the one who delivers. He's the one who is faithful to his promises. So, we're going to look into Isaiah 33. That's what our focus is going to be, that chapter. So, let's, let's pray and we'll see what the Lord has for us tonight as we look at this. Father, again, we're going to see Isaiah tell us that you are, you are the only God, the true God, the God who promises to protect and does, the God who promises to deliver and does, the God who promises to save and does. And so, Father, I pray that as we look into your word tonight, 
that uh, our, our ears will be open, our hearts will be hungry to hear your word. And Father, I pray that you will allow your spirit to just give us an understanding of everything that we say. So Father, please, please, let the words that we speak, the discussion that we have, be honoring and glorifying to you. And Father, please, meet with us tonight. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. So the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at a combination thing. There's a lot of stuff here in a half a dozen verses. Um, We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Isaiah 33. And in that, we're going to see a combination of salvation and wrath. We're going to see pictures of uh, Zion and a a few other things. So I'm going to read those uh, 12 verses, and then we're going to start digging into them in, in chunks here. Isaiah 33, starting in verse 1. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as the locust leaps it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. For the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. Basham and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Okay, there's a lot here, obviously. Isaiah packs a lot in just a handful of verses most of the time. All right, and, and what we're going to see here is we're going to just look at the first word in, in the first verse. That, that word, awe is translated in the ASV, in the King James, the New King James, all right, as woe. And, and what we see is woe has a couple of different kinds of meanings, but they're all related, if you will, in Scripture. But what you'll see in Isaiah is 14 times Isaiah uses the word woe as a declaration of divine judgment. All right, and that's exactly what we're going to see here. All right, it's a declaration of divine judgment on Assyria. Now, Bible scholars pretty much agree from what I can tell uh, that the destroyer, the traitor that's referenced in verse 1 is Assyria, even though not named, right? Uh, some believe the traitor reference to Assyria goes all the way back to uh, Assyria's failure to honor an agreement, a, a pact that they made, if you will, uh, with King Ahaz years before. Other scholars propose it's reasonable to assume that the current king of Assyria, Sennacherib, 
all right, may have had traitors or spies among the Israelites. And other scholars believe historical evidence reveals that the traitor or treacherous acts point to King Sennacherib's treachery in accepting Hezekiah's apology and taking his money, all right, but not sparing Jerusalem, still manning the attack on Jerusalem. All right. Whichever one of those you want to follow down through, all right, the idea is that Assyria is the one specifically here being accused of treachery, right, and the one that judgment is going to be uh, come, come upon. Uh, now, we've already said that Isaiah's uh, prophecies are layered, all right, and you often have this near term and longer term and end of days kind of things mentioned. Uh, that's part of what you even start to see here as we're looking at some of this. The near term, obviously, is the destruction of Assyria, right? That's eminent. Um, maybe not tomorrow, but a few years down the road, but it's eminent. It's going to happen. Now, the long term is possibly a description of the increasing depravity of mankind, all right? Becoming destroyers, becoming traitors, becoming betrayers, you know, that idea. And then the final destruction, all right, of the betrayer, uh, of the traitor, the destroyer, uh, could obviously be a reference to the ultimate destroyer being Satan and destruction in the last days. So you can see how Isaiah kind of layers these things, you know, and whether he's fully aware of it, which I personally don't believe he was, right, aware of that layering, nonetheless, it is a layered prophecy, and it happens a lot. Okay. One commentator observed that Isaiah does something unusual here, all right? not any different than you see Paul do from time to time. Uh, he adds a prayer in the middle of his prophecy. He asks for the Lord's grace and protection, be our arm, okay? an arm of protection, uh, and salvation in times of trouble. Right now, the time of trouble that they're looking at is what? The Assyrian army. All right. Um, there's something else in this prayer, according to this commentator. Isaiah says, we wait for you. Now, for me, that's an indication here that there are some people in Judah all right, that are repentant. And we saw that when? We saw that last week. We've seen that in weeks past. All right. Those in Judah who are repentant all right, are who? The remnant, okay? Those who have remained faithful to the Lord. So if we think of the remnant as the faithful Jews in Judah, this then would be kind of the prayer of their heart. Lord, continue to be our protector, be our arm, be what we need for protection, and our deliverer, be our salvation in these troubling times. So you can see how that comes together. All right. Now we know that in the not-too-distant future with this prophecy, all right, we know that the Lord does step in. All right, he steps in and takes care of Assyria. You see that in 2 Kings 19.35. It says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Now, Although the defeat of the Assyrian army occurred fairly quickly, 185,000 people during the night, 
All right. Isaiah depicts it in verse 3 as a tumultuous noise, the thunder of God's voice, that kind of idea. And King Sennacherib is not killed, all right, and some of his army is not killed, but enough are that everybody goes back home. They flee, all right, and they scatter, is what we see in those verses. And in doing so, they leave the spoils of their conquest behind. The things that they have taken as they've been advancing through Judah, town by town by town, all right, taking whatever they wanted, all right, they're leaving some of that stuff behind. Some of those spoils are being left behind. Now, it's reasonable to think that there's a lot being left behind. And I'll tell you, tell you why I th- think that way. Um, remember, it's been 20 years now since the northern tribes were, were captured and the people were replaced and, and whatnot. All right. They're taking a lot of gold and bribes and all of that kind of stuff. But even today, if you if you look on a map and, and look it up, even today, it's about 700 miles through desert, virtually uninhabited land from Jerusalem to Mosul, Iraq, which is the large city that's now surrounding where Nineveh was on the Tigris River, which is where Sennacherib and his guys are going back. Snocker going back, obviously, you know, Nick told us a few weeks back, to be murdered by his sons. Okay, but he's going back to Nineveh. Mosul, Iraq is there. 700 miles. All right. Now, so it's reasonable to think that things that they've taken, maybe even the treasury from Israel, that stuff's still close to Jerusalem. And so what we see in these verses, we see that those spoils that they left behind, those spoils of war are now available for the folks of Judah to just go pick up, to pick over. And the references like caterpillars and like locusts, picking over things that they didn't plant, things they didn't work for, just there. Provisions from the Lord in this event. Now, verses 5 and 6 here give us a picture of God's people, spiritual Israel, well beyond the days of Hezekiah and the defeat of Assyria. This is out a ways. God says he will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He says he'll bring stability, peace, if you will, to the land. Salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. Knowledge of the Lord will be the norm, not the exception. Right? It's not a few folks who are going to know a little bit about the Lord. It's everyone that's going to know about the Lord. Okay, that knowledge of the Lord. And that knowledge about God who dwells on high is going to be the treasure of Zion. This goes all the way back to the first chapter of Isaiah. The first five chapters of Isaiah, basically, leading up to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is called. Okay, they were... 20,000 foot view of, of what I'm going to tell you in the rest of the book, pretty much. So back in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, it says, this is the Lord speaking, it says, And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. 
and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So Isaiah gives us a little snippet, and then as he goes on, he keeps giving us more and more details of what's happening. And now we're at the point of the defeat of Assyria. Now, prior to that day that uh, Isaiah just described, Judah is going to be judged for their rejection of the Lord and their dependence on their military might and their cunning political maneuvering and their forbidden alliances. So if we look at verses 7 through 12 here, and I, I'll just read those again. It says, Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. Basham and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff and you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in a fire. Here we start to see this picture of Judah just prior to the point where the Lord says, Okay, it's my turn. I will arise. I am going to act. Okay, so we're seeing Judah right before that happens. And what we see is the military leaders of Judah, their heroes, right? They cry in the street, according to his voice. You know, woe is me. We're going to be overrun, right? So they're crying in the street, if you will. The ambassadors, those people who are making all the foreign contacts and agreements, right? The ambassadors, the envoys of peace, they weep bitterly, right? Weeping bitterly over the fact that all their efforts have been wasted. None of these covenants are holding together. Judah's cut off. Right? The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Right? There's nobody coming in. There's nothing coming in. There's no trade. There's no support. There are no provisions. The peace treaty, the covenant with Assyria, is useless. Assyria has no regard for either man or the land. They don't care. The cities within their path were destroyed. No matter how impressive or important those cities may have been, they were destroyed. It says Lebanon, mentions Lebanon. Lebanon was known for its magnificent cedar forests, its timbers, right, and a variety of animals that were there. Sharon was a plain along the Mediterranean, known for its lush pasture land and its uh, gardens. Basham was known for its large oak trees, its big forests, and its pasture land, and Carmel, uh, was known for its fertile land and its orchards, things like that. Made no difference. Assyria is marching through, and we don't care, right? Everything gets turned into a wasteland, a desert, if you will, to the point where Isaiah says even the land itself mourns and languishes. That's what Judah was facing. That's where they were. All of their attempts were useless, if you will. All right? And this is what happens. 
right? The time is now. God says, I will arise. The time is right for God to be lifted up and exalted. The efforts of Judah were nothing but chaff and stubble to be consumed. Their efforts will be useless as if burned to lime, burned in the fire. Alex Montier, who has excellent commentaries on, uh, on Isaiah, made, made this comment about verses 11 and 12. He said, and I think it's on your sheet, uh, they have conceived and now they must give birth. What an indictment of life without God. Plans no more than chaff, achievements no more than straw. In the Assyrian crisis, the chaff and straw represent people doing their utmost best, thinking their hardest, being their most realistic and practical, applying collective wisdom to the hard questions of life, but leaving God out. Like we said, Hezekiah, this is the last thing I know to do. Give them all the money we got. All right? Last thing. The first thing he should have done is what? Trusted the Lord who promised to protect. Right? So, as we saw last week in chapter 32, and this time, this time so far in verses 5 and 6, Isaiah describes what the Lord will do for Zion. He's going to fill Zion with justice and righteousness and wisdom and knowledge and fear of himself. Zion will have stability, will be at peace. And now Isaiah goes into this next set of verses, and he's going to describe what Zion will be like. This is what's going to happen to Zion, but now let's see what Zion is going to be like. Verses 13 through 24. I'll read through those, and then again we'll just pick them apart a little bit. Here. You who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking at evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of the rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your courts hang loose. 
They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. You got to remember when we look at scripture and you hear terms like uh, those who are far off, right? Typically, those who are far off is a reference to Gentiles, those not associated with Israel, all right? And then you see reference to those who are near, all right, which is a reference to, to the Jews. And so here, God is calling the Jews, those who are near, to acknowledge my might. Just acknowledge what I've done. Acknowledge to the world the mighty works of God. Their God, the only God. Acknowledge to the world what God has done. Judah, you're unable to save yourself. With all your plotting and scheming and everything you've done, you were unable to save yourself, but yet the Lord easily protected you. Acknowledge his might. Let the world know. God tells the Gentiles to hear to understand what he's done for his people. He's delivered them from destruction in a very powerful way, delivered them from destruction. He's faithfully kept his promise to them. He's a sovereign God over everything, including mighty military nations. He's the God of history. Isaiah likes to keep telling us that God is basically God of history. And this is not a history that simply records what God does, all right? But in fact, it's a history that he totally controls himself. He is sovereign over that history, all right? So it's not that this is historical account of what God's done. No, God's in charge of everything. This is just recording what he did, okay? That kind of idea. Isaiah then goes on to describe the people of Zion again. He goes back and forth between the people of Zion, what Zion's like, what God's done, all right, back and forth. He says the sinners in Zion, remember not everybody was faithful to the Lord, right? There's only a remnant, a small group. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, that's who, right? Who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing um, bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of the rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. When sinners see God for who he really is, they are always undone. Always. Now, there must be, like we said, some sinners in Judah, all right? Otherwise, we wouldn't say the sinners in Zion, right? Uh, And what we see here is when God acts, when God arises, when God is exalted, all right, they're trembling. They're afraid. You know, who can dwell basically in the presence of a holy God? Verse 15 reminds us only those who walk righteously and speak uprightly. Okay? 
those who are honest and just, those who turn from evil, they're the ones who are going to dwell with the Lord. And the Lord will be their defender and their provider and dwell with them. Isaiah goes on to tell us who the faithful are. They're going to see the king, which we saw. All right. And now we see another picture here of Zion's king. Verses 17 through 19. It says, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Who is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. One of the rewards here for those who are righteous that we see is they're going to see the king in his beauty. They're going to see the king in his glory, right? In an endless land of peace. Now, the reference here is Judah's going to think back to this threat of Assyria, right? Who counted, right? Who weighed the tribute? The Assyrians. Who, who counted all the walls? Who tried to count the soldiers? Who did all this stuff? Who counted the money that we gave them? Who counted the tribute? Who counted the towers around Jerusalem? Those people, all right? And they're told, don't worry about them. You're not going to be bothered by them again, by those insolent people of obscure speech. They're a thing of the past. Don't worry about them. The king of righteousness is going to be faithful to his promise to be your defender, to defend Zion, to defend Jerusalem, and it'll all be at peace. And then Isaiah describes what this city of peace looks like. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. I think this goes back to a reference of things like during the exile and, and beyond. Okay, Those were the days when Israel was wandering. All right? They were nomadic. Okay? They're wandering all over. They'd go someplace. They'd stay for a while. All right? Time to move on. We take the tent. We take the tabernacle. We pack everything up and we go someplace else. All right. And so unlike those days, all right, when they're moving on, this new Jerusalem is ultimately going to be permanent. All right. It's going to be untroubled. It's going to be immovable. You're not going to have to pack it up and move. This is where you're going to be forever. All right. It's going to be the city of appointed feasts. It's going to be the city that the Lord has established. All right. Never to be plucked up. You're not going to be forced to move anymore. The tent's going to be immovable. There's no longer going to be a threat to you in that, in that tent, if you will, your habitation. It says the reference to the cords here being broken. says there's not going to be a threat to, the, to you in the temple anymore. All right. The city's going to be at peace because it's going to be the dwelling place of the king. Okay? So... <coughs> Isaiah now gives us a picture of the king again in Zion with his people. Verse 
21 through 23. It says, But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a palace of a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. In, in those days, one of the best defenses that a city, especially a place like Nineveh that's on the Tigris or any other city, one of the best defenses that a city could have is to basically be surrounded by water. Okay, And so this reference here of the, the Lord being broad rivers and streams, the idea was you have enough water and it's deep enough that soldiers aren't going to be walking through it to invade. Right? It's going to stop foot soldiers from invading. Right? But yet it's not going to be deep enough for the ships with oars, right? the galley ships that carry troops. Right? It's not going to be deep enough for them to go up. Right? So they're not going to be able to go. And the larger ships, right? the uh, majestic ships, they call it, it's obviously not going to be deep enough for them. So... Your perfect set of protection here in in those days was to be in a situation where you're being protected by the water. All right? Invaders aren't going to get you no matter how they try. And here what we see is the Lord is going to be that for us. He's going to be a protector like that. Invading armies are not going to have an opportunity to get to us at all. In his future Jerusalem, the Lord will be Judah's judge. We've seen that before. Lawgiver, king, savior. Judah, when it was acting on its own own, with no thought of the Lord, was like a sailing ship with loose ropes, not attached to the sails, not able to make the sails spread. You're basically not able to move and can't go in any direction, right? You're floundering if you will. That's what they were like. But now, no one's going to be needy. No one's going to need protection because the Lord is going to be both provider and protector in this. To the point where those who were unable to care for themselves, the lame, okay, could not go and fend for themselves, could not go capture prey, could not go hunting. That idea, all right, they're going to have plenty. There will be plenty for everyone. The Lord will be total provider. Okay? And verse 24 kind of sums some of this up and says, And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be, will be forgiven their iniquity. When the Lord is Judah's judge, lawgiver, and king, when they're going to be forgiven their iniquity, remember this is not a piece of the short term, this is the long term, okay? Long term piece of prophecy. All right. Um, when they're forgiven their iniquity, they're going to be healed completely, okay? This reference of in those last days, right? When God recreates everything new, 
right? New heaven, new earth, that kind of idea. And no one's going to say I'm sick. Isaiah sees this future Jerusalem where the Lord and his majesty dwells with his people and protects his chosen people. Pretty much the same kind of vision that who? John, Saul, and recorded for us in Revelation 21. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Okay? So as we, as we kind of go through Isaiah here, we continue to see this multi-layeredness of Isaiah's prophecies. And in the last two chapters, in 32 and 33, we've seen Isaiah describing the majesty of the Lord, the power of the Lord, his protection of his people, the promises that he makes to provide and to protect. We see all of that. And we see all of that also for the establishment of the church. Okay? And God saying to what? Don't be, don't be afraid. I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Right? So we see that, the promise that I am with you, I'll take care of you, I'll protect you, does it mean, like we saw with Judah, things are going to be easy? All right? They won't be. All right? But it doesn't mean that God's abandoned us either. So we see that. So in part of this, we see that God uses whatever he pleases to use all right, to enact judgment or to grant blessing. Okay? Whatever he chooses. So we see that the judgment of Assyria is certain... Okay, though it hadn't happened yet at the time when Isaiah wrote this, it hadn't happened yet, but it was certain it was coming. Okay, the preservation of the remnant is certain, though suffering is going to happen first. The time of the Lord dwelling with his people, redeeming and providing for them, absolutely certain, but we know it's not yet fully realized. Okay. So we see this. God makes promises. Those promises are absolutely certain, absolutely guaranteed. All right? Can't be defeated by anyone by any means. All right? But they all don't happen the moment we hear about them. Right? Does that make sense? So we've got this glorious picture that we keep seeing of God and his majesty. Isaiah is starting to give these pictures to us. Right? And we see God dwelling with his people. We see him providing for his people. We see him protecting his people. And so the next time, uh, we'll jump into 34. At 34, and chapter 34 starts to talk about what some of those judgments are going to look like to some of the different nations. So we'll start and we'll take a look at some of that. All right. Les, would you close us up? Father God, we thank you for your word this evening. Fathers, we opened up your scripture. Father, we entered into the holy place. And Father, as we think through these words, these truths that we taught us tonight, 
came through the pen of Isaiah. Father, may we contemplate the reality that we encountered you. Father, and, and, and as we study your word throughout our days, Father, may we be reminded of that. And Father, I thank you for that truth that John writes in Revelation that, Father, in the new heaven and the new earth, you will dwell with mankind. So, Father, we thank you for this truth. We look forward to that day, Father, where we will be in your presence, free of pain, free of fear, free of sin, and rejoicing forevermore. Father, I thank you for your Son, for Christ, through whom his obedience and his death, punishment for our sin was placed upon his shoulders. So we rejoice in the fact that you loved us so much that you gave us your son. And Father, may we, as we depart this place, live in such a way that shows that affection towards you. May we live in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel, as we seek and pursue after holiness and sanctification and are molded by your word. Father, I thank you for John for his time and effort to put in to this presentation, this, this sermon tonight. Father, and I pray that we are exhorted and edified by it. Thank you, Father, for this night. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.